Welcome to the Image Method Podcast. This is a show where we discuss issues in making moving images. My name is TW and Image Method is an enhanced podcast, meaning that images we talk about on the show can be seen as album artwork in iTunes. Just make sure you turn on the view album artwork feature in iTunes and you should be on your way. You can also see the images by playing this file in QuickTime or by going to the Image Method blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. In this episode, we'll be talking about the notion of a sincere cinematography. And what I mean by that is lighting and camera work that allows a story to be told with an authenticity, a sort of adherence to realness, uh, a camera style, and an aesthetic that rejects fakery. In this first episode to explore this concept, we'll be discussing the French film Cachet, which was a highly decorated film. Uh, it's also known as Hidden. That's the English title. And this is a film directed by Michael Haneke and photographed by Austrian cinematographer Christian Berger. Michael Haneke won the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival in 2006 for this film. And this film is done in a classic European tradition, and um, I'll only say right now that it is a very striking approach to filmmaking. Talking with me today about a cinematography without pretense is one of the least pretentious people I know. Alan Jacobson is a cinematographer in New York who has been the chief lighting technician on over two dozen movies, and as a cinematographer, most of his work has been on the realness side of things, specializing in documentary films. But he also recently lends the independent feature comedy The Auteur, uh, pardon my French. Alan Jacobson, thank you for being on the Image Method podcast. My pleasure, thank you. I saw Cachet based on your recommendation and I was blown away by its delicate, understated camera work. Tell us about this film. Well, you know, I, I saw it for the first time, and I remember hearing a lot of buzz about it at the time that it was out, but I skipped it in theater because, you know, it has a funny foreign name, and who has time for subtitles? <laughs> but uh, I, so I actually ended up watching it for the first time in, on my laptop in the waiting area of JFK, um, waiting for a delayed flight, mm-hmm. and uh, not the most ideal of viewing situations. But what was incredible was that I was immediately, from the very first shot, which is the f- sets up a lot of the ideas of the movie, really sucked in. It actually starts during the credits and just continues, and uh, and it starts from there. But um, it was just immediately sucked in, and my and the whole waiting area seemed to kind of disappear and. Uh, Wow. So it 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 had it did do this job of kind of uh, a very striking job of uh, transporting me right off the bat, which doesn't happen very often with me. And also, I realized like that the people on my traveling companions who are on both sides of me were both watching it too, although they couldn't hear it. But it was visually arresting enough hmm. that uh, people were uh, tuning in. Now you you describe it that way, and it sounds like to be. For somebody who hasn't seen it, they might get the idea that there's all these compelling music video style images that no one has ever seen before, but it's really not like that at all. Yeah, I said arresting, didn't I? I guess, uh, well, it was arresting to me. It, it was arresting to me, but it was completely, yeah, not, not, not the way you might, you might think of it. You know, the first shot is probably uh, eight minutes long, uninterrupted, and it ends with the, uh, you know, with this conceit that it's a, 
It's, it's a shot that's been recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there's nothing really, uh, I guess when you have an eight minute static shot up on the screen, you really have a chance to look at it and it turns something that's kind of, uh, a normal view into something much more. It gave me a lot of time to look and see and think about what I was about to see. So uh, in that sense, it, that shot really made you, uh, study all the detail in it and th- it got you used to being patient with all the other shots because the pace of the movie might seem a little lethargic to people used to action movies or American movies in general, but by having a shot that was so long, it really kind of set the pace where you deliberately kind of, with a lot of intention, it seemed like you were supposed to reduce your metabolism and just sort of learn right. to wait for things. Right, which will serve you well throughout that movie, and uh, and it becomes part of the theme of the characters, too, is like being very aware of watching and listening and and uh, being watched. So I thought it was remarkable right from the start. And, um, and yeah, and I, I've always, I'm always a fan of a movie that takes as much time as it needs to set up its ideas. But I don't always have the patience to, you know, to, give it, to get into that mindset, so I was thankful to find that. How would you describe the look of this movie? I guess uh, I would describe it as, you know, the view out the window. Just a very kind of plain and observational clean look there there isn't a lot of it's a lot of uh, just kind of wide lingering frames to let your eye do the looking um there's not a lot of direction from the camera it's not uh, the uh the camera work and the editing isn't telling you where to look at all at, the, at all times like a like a lot of movies will um so i guess it's uh mm-hmm. it's a real gazing movie and the style of the photography i think is it's very observational. It, the camera just seems to linger and follow people and unfold the scene in front. For people who haven't seen the movie, I should say that the camera work is pretty much on uh, sticks or a dolly all the time. There's almost no handheld, I don't believe, in the movie. And I don't think any at all. And Yeah, the, um, the camera moves are pretty much integrated into the blocking of the actors, and I think that's actually one of the key things about the movie is that the for me was that the actors were able to move around everywhere in the room and the lighting was so natural and the the idea that we could see so much of the room in continuous shots had a real um a really interesting effect for me it was very subtle and not flashy but i was noticing wow they're not cutting up this movie actors can just move around the way they would in a room or in a house so naturally it wasn't seen to be dictated by where the light was or where it was easy to get the camera they just seemed to be so free to move around there are some shots where the camera covers three different rooms and uh dolly's yeah. uh through them all right i i think you're right i don't think there's a i don't think there's a camera move in the film that's not motivated by movement of somebody in the frame i don't think there's an unmotivated camera movement anywhere in the film what what i notice is the lack of compositions in this movie that really scream out that they were composed by somebody and it's the same with the art direction things really do look in a very authentic way like people actually live there this is what they wear this is the stuff they bought and put in their house this is how they light the house the lighting in the movie just to me seems so natural because it didn't necessarily seem contrived it just wasn't it didn't look set up at all and i should mention here too that this movie was shot in hd 
So, um, you know, they had some gamma manipulation and a lot of low light capability as they went, uh, you know, throughout the different right. rooms and stuff like that. And I think that is also part of its natural look as well. I wonder if this film was, uh, if the decision to shoot HD was mandated by the story or if it was, if there was another reason. Do you know the story behind that? I don't know why they chose to shoot HD. Um, I know that this team, Henneke and Christian Berger, the DP, shot The Piano Teacher, and that was film. I don't know anything about why they shot HD in this movie, but it, it was it was part of the immediacy of the look, I think. They had a lot of depth of field, for example. Yeah. And uh, I hate that look, right. personally. Right. But... And the ability to roll longer oh, takes and then yeah. perhaps was part of it. I don't know if there's... I don't... I don't know if there's any shots that are longer than a 35-millimeter mag, but um, uh, that might have been a part of it. But it also plays into some of the ideas in the story about electronic observation and surveillance and things like that, so maybe that was part of it. You were talking about the first shot in the movie. That shot, as a lot of other compositions in the film, are not built around one central message. They're kind of um, imprecise or... They seem like very genuine compositions where they're almost surveillance-y. Like the first, the first shot in the movie that you were talking about, there's, it's hard to see what the central focus of the composition is. It's of a house on a street, on an urban street, but you right. can't really tell what we're supposed to be looking at as if an unprofessional surveiller set the shot up and wasn't concerned with anything to do with composition. And that sort of apparent lack of regard for composition kind of gives this look a little more sense of realness to it. A less, it seemed less apparent that these shots were set up by somebody to be pleasing filmic images. Right. It's a very sloppy frame, but because you're given the time to look at it, it takes on more significance and kind of forced to confront the banality of it. It's a very banal-looking film in some ways. I mean, all the, you know, all the interiors are very kind of generally open lit and uh the the night interiors are pretty low key lighting but it uh it's, i think it all serves the story well it really just lets you uh the viewer look around and and find the story because it's really a good story i mean the translation of the title into hidden is i think very accurate it's the story is kind of just hidden within these everyday milieus that the that the characters are swept up in there's no real sense of an overarching plot point. You don't really know where the story is going, which is very European sensibility, I think. Yeah, you and I have a disagreement about that. I actually um, don't care for how the movie ended. And, um, yeah, I, I sort of like a little more ending to my movies in general. I didn't really care for how The Piano Teacher ended uh, either. But I do appreciate the style of this uh, of this movie and it. It, you are kind of wondering where it's going, and I guess the disappointing part for me is it doesn't really go any place that's that satisfying for me. But you know, it is a European approach. But the lighting is very European too, in the sense. I mean, this is really a big tradition, you know. Luckily, you've got many, many movies, T.W., that you can tune into it to, to get a good, get a nice, solid, resolute ending. So I'm happy that there's a couple out there that. that <laughs> let my experience of viewing it carry on into the evening and to the next day and a week later. I, I kind of like that ambiguity. You like a nice nagging feeling about what the <laughs> hell is that story about? Well, it's funny because you mentioned that this our conversation about this started when I turned you on to this movie. I actually remember it a slightly different. I remember mentioning Cachet in response to a movie that you mentioned to me, which was uh, this picture, Running with Scissors. Mm -hmm. 
you brought it up as a frustrating experience where you, I think, were frustrated by the movie, and I had happened to have just seen it with my wife about three days before. Well, mm-hmm. we saw about the first hour of it because I found it so nauseating that I couldn't even finish it. It's too bad about uh, that movie. I was looking forward to it because I love Annette Benning and I really liked the book. And I was just dis- I was excited to see the movie, and it was disappointing to see how eh, it was nauseating. I mean, that's yeah, and it's a nice foil to what we're talking about here because it's that's a movie where I feel like I didn't even watch the end of it, but I felt like I probably could have figured it out. I mean, it's in terms of having an open ending, it's the opposite of that. I felt from the very first frame of that movie, everything was predetermined and predestined, and I might there was no room for the audience to infer anything. It was just so over, over the, overbearing and over the top. It differs from Cachet in a lot of ways. Um, chiefly, I think what we're saying is that this movie, Running With Scissors, is a completely fake experience. And I think that was the intention of the filmmakers, clearly, because they had an art department gone wild, and they just mm-hmm. had so many major, important-looking props and colors. You can really just tell. They just... They had such a heavy hand smashing in on all the artistic decisions that you could really sense um, that there were film artists at work with every frame you saw in the movie. It did did feel a lot to me like the prop department was, you know, it was the movie of the year for the prop guys and the production designers, and they just, they got out all their 80s cliches and put them all on the screen, and there was no... There was no vision as to how to make that a little bit more believable. But the photography, right. too, is the same way. I mean, every frame was chock-a-block full of perfect three-quarter front lights and uh, mm-hmm. glowing eye lights, and there's a perfect soft backlight on everybody at all times. Yes. All the co- it just it, Each scene devolved into typical coverage immediately, and uh, even the uh, intro and outro shots to these scenes were, like, very cliched. I just thought it was completely fake and... The opposite of what you're talking about. It was not sincere at all. I should remind our listeners that the images we're talking about can be seen by turning on the album artwork in iTunes or by going to the Image Method blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. Let's try to quantify kind of the differences in this movie. Some of the cliches that were used in specifically the camera and lighting department you mentioned were these kind of perfect backlights, perfect eye lights three-quarter soft front key lights you know I mean what makes lighting more real as we saw in the cachet film for me it's about feeling and understanding the source of that light it it feels real to me when I see the sources when I see the light itself and its effect Um, it makes it feels real to me when I feel and see light coming from um, natural places uh, from the walls from the floor when I look at some of the stills from Running in Scissors, it's like that light is never really explained. It's always coming from the perfect angle. Right, And right. Um, unless you, you know, really luck into a location that always plays that, it's uh, it's just such a highly manicured look. Um, you know, yes. I think... Um, I think that manicured description also fits the costume department and the art department, too. All the colors match. You know, like everybody who appears in the movie has a uh, a stylist you know picking their clothes out for the day you know? yeah 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 and you see you see that in cachet a lot of the clothes are absolutely nondescript that you know you don't even notice any of them they're just so they just fall away in service to the performance of the people they're wearing the most generic yet 
you know, not boring, perfectly nice photographically, but you just don't even notice the colors of anything. They're just so subdued by right. choice. It's, it's definitely, but it definitely takes a lot of work to to maintain that subtlety, I think, or that realism. And I think it's a, you know, I doubt there was a uh, 50-foot-long wardrobe truck on cachet. It just doesn't have that yeah. same that same uh, in- industrial uh, quality to it, that this is a manufactured reality. And I'm looking at some of the frames from Cachet again, and uh, there's um, um, from the dining room scene. But this frame really shows this idea. You know, we were talking about the feeling the source of the light, and it's messy, it's sloppy, and he's over there, just a shadow in kind of a murky, you know, he's at the edge of this pool, um, but he's mm-hmm. just a murky shadow, and I... I uh, you know, I'm just going to say that that's that's the kind of um, sloppiness that I don't think you'd ever see in Running with Scissors because there's here's your main character, off in the shadows with no, uh, you know, no key light and no defining backlight. It's uh, it's just mm-hmm. a much more kind of um, it's a much more trustworthy kind of lighting where you trust that your audience is going to understand who that person is. It's putting more faith in the audience to 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 be able to look at a to look at a scene and understand how it's motivated. You know. I don't. I think that there's probably an equivalent frame in Running with Scissors where that guy has probably a, a gleaming, uh, you know, a gleaming backlight around him to make sure you remember that he's important. Right, right. There'd be a little spot on the door there to separate him out as he walks upstairs. Upstage. Right. One of the most interesting things that Christian Berger was doing in shooting Cachet, it seems, it seems like to me, is he was really using the entire range of exposure at different times, but willing to, at various points, to have a very narrow range of exposure and have it be very, very dark. That seems to be his range that he was using. There wasn't necessarily like a color palette he was working with, except a lot of neutrals and stuff, but um, there are moments in the film that are just so dark um, and underexposed and I'm looking here at the scene in the bedroom toward the end of the film Um, in this scene in the bedroom not only was the exposure really dark some of the light was very fronty and extremely flat I mean look at image 60 where where Juliette Binoche comes in looking right looking toward the door looking toward the door you know yeah as it would be in that in the reality of that right room. the window the light is in that bedroom the light is coming from the two bedroom windows and there's no lights on in the room now you can see um, that they probably did have something coming in overhead to sort of get on that bed when looking back toward the windows but when they face the door the light mm-hmm. is completely flat and completely quote unquote underexposed yeah, it's a very satisfying scene for for me, because that just reads it reads reality, and it under you know, and it's what their characters need right now. He's hiding out. He's at the the depths of his of his despair. So it really um, it's a really a great uh, finality to the story. I think the way that it just it just right on the edge of uh, exposure yeah. there, really mm-hmm. gutsy stuff. That's the kind of thing that an audience, even an an an, an uncritical audience. Uh, you know, that's just experiencing the movie will really understand on a on a psychological level. It's I don't think this is anything. I mean, if anyone's aware of it, they'll probably think, "Man, that's kind of dark. What's going on there?" Uh, probably would blame it on the projectionist. But these cues are working, are you know, are working very uh, emotionally on us, and uh, I think it helps connect everybody with what it would take to be <laughs> to get one of us in a room with the lights off and the shades mm-hmm. drawn. 
it's just a much more, uh, I think, immersive way to to uh, make an image. Did you notice the way in which um, sometimes the characters didn't even have their faces on screen? There were long periods when Juliette Binoche didn't even right. face the camera. Yeah, and again, that's that's like the sloppiness that you would that you would get in real life, and I think that's you know, it's it's just gonna it's gonna make the audience understand that they're they're catching something that might be really happening. It just seems really, I just think it seems You know what that real. is too is um, people are not playing to the camera because it, it's like there's not right. a camera there. So these kind of obvious performance type of techniques, turning out toward the camera, putting light where the actor's face is, these are all kind of fakery type things that sort of undermine the genuine nature or authentic nature of this kind of filmmaking. Absolutely. If, I remember the first the first scene of this type that came up in the movie, which is represented well in picture number four, a long take uh, that that comes to settle on this dinner scene, and there's Julia Binoche facing away from us for the entire first part of the scene before the sun comes in. That's, um, you know, in these din dining room table scenes are always very hard to cover because you can never really see. I, it's always stressful, I think, for me in that you, you've got people... Uh, one on each side of a four-seat table, and you know that you're never going to be able to see everybody at all at once. But it was very inspiring to me to remember that you don't always need that. Right. Uh, the first time you see that, you see the husband in profile, and they're talking, but you barely see Julia Binoche's character's face. But it also uh, hints at what's to come, and then the sun comes and fills in that spot. But there's a lot of dinner table scenes that happen at that uh, at that table where uh, you know one character will kind of lean in and just block another character for a good part of the scene. It just feels very uh, observed and, and uncontrolled. One thing that was really important that I noticed was the lack of point-of-view angles in this movie. A lot of right. medium two-shots and medium four-shots. Right. You know, they just don't really get in there. So again, it's it's that reason that people aren't playing to the camera is the camera isn't taking a character's point of view as just uh, a matter of reflex. It does at certain times. Now, there's a scene um, where the main character yeah. uh, uh, goes to visit his boss. And what I really liked about that scene was the way the within the scene, we see all four corners of the room and we're looking out two of the walls which are completely windows so he's balancing interior and exterior seemingly effortlessly with very soft lighting no glare or reflections and the actors are moving around the room and within the scene we see all 360 and the light is still nice and sidey so it was actually technically a beautifully executed scene without a flaw and um, very subtly done. I'm not even sure how they did that, Al. Do you have any ideas? You know a little bit about Christian Berger's uh, technique. He's actually developed a system that work, that he where he uses uh, a lot of these reflective panels um, in conjunction with a with a very strong uh, collimated light source, a light source that has a very very narrow beam. Mm -hmm. And so the whole purpose of his system is to is to get away from kind of this idea of a, for, of a unit with a force that stands to modulate the light. He's using reflectors to both position the light and to uh, and to shape it, um, mm -hmm. and and keeping the relatively few light sources uh, further back, even outside of a set or in the hallway, and bouncing the light in with reflectors. So I think he calls the system like uh, the. Cinema reflex system or something like that? Cinema reflector Re system? Refract 
Reflect Light system, I think it's called. Okay, yeah. yeah. We will have a link to that in the notes of the show. This is Christian Berger's invention, and it's a beam projector. What it is is a beam projector that, uh, which is a very narrow beam source, very bright, very narrow, concentrated light source that is rifled into a series of reflectors with specially designed surfaces so that they reflect back right. uh, the light uh, at particular angles and at particular shapes. And we will have a link to his system uh, in the show notes when you go to imagemethod.blogspot.com. So um, what do you think about this system, Al? Well, I think it's ingenious, and uh, it's something that I, I wish that I had uh, turned into a system. <laughs> It's, I've always been a, I've always been a real big fan of using mirrors and and reflect reflective sources um, because they you know can allow you to get a light source into a tight corner that you never would be able to with a light and, and with the added advantage of if you if you're reflecting a light source from a corner for instance you're you're gaining a lot of the uh, fall off characteristics of by having a light further away. The light source itself becomes, in effect, uh, you know, double the distance behind the mirror. If you're bringing, uh, if you're trying to mimic uh, sunlight coming into a room, and uh, are you saying that when you reflect the light off a mirror, you're increasing the overall distance of the light, so that gives you better inverse square law kinds of advantages? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is it's, that true? It's true. It's absolutely true. Huh. So. Uh, well, it's true when you have like a specular mirror surface, and you're actually uh, it, it becomes less true the more diffused your reflecting surface is. You know, the right. more the softer that your reflector is, the more that sort the reflector itself becomes your source. But yeah, if you if you put a mirror up against the wall and shine a light from right. within the room into the mirror, you know, you go to the chair where the light is hitting, and you look into that mirror, the light source appears to be. Whatever, ten or fifteen feet beyond that wall, and you right, think right. of the mirror. Of a, think of a mirror as a hole that you're shooting light through. All of a sudden, so so with that technique, the mirror actually gives you um, a more even light even. nearer to the mirror and further away from the mirror. It's a it's a way to work with the in, inverse square law to have the light be more even across its you know, across its beam. Right. Well, I'll have a link in the show notes uh, also that will direct people to find out about the inverse square law if they don't already know about the very important inverse right. square law, if they don't remember it from their high school physics class. <laughs> um, so anyway, go on, I Al. Think, Sorry. But I think the way that it plays off, it, it works well for Christian Berger in these kind of very naturalistic uh, settings is that if he's got his beam projector light in the next room uh, 40 feet away and he's bouncing it through a number of mirrors to get into the set, by the time that it's hitting that last objective mirror, and he'll use, he'll use very finely polished hard mirror uh, reflectors mm-hmm. that are about two foot by two foot square to bring the light down a hallway around the corner into a room and then into the final room and then he'll put his textured surface to do the final reflection to give it a shape. and. A lot of the surfaces are like a are like a milled metal, like a high, like a granulated aluminum, or uh, mm-hmm. they have a cut pattern cut into them, which makes a square panel produce kind of a long linear uh, shape, or just different degrees of softness and spread. So he can rifle the light uh, down through a series of mirrors through a hallway, 50 feet into a room, and then right. use a, a reflector right near near the person to take that light and then spread it out and soften it up 
And because that light has traveled such a long way, you're going to pick up a lot of advantages in the light level uh, across the room. And what's the beam projector he's using? What do you know about the actual beam projector? He, he What's the light source? The one I saw, and I went to a, sem- I went to a seminar that he gave in, in Los Angeles last year, and at that time he had one... He had one beam projector that they had built, and it was a 1,200-watt HMI source uh, mounted in a parabolic uh, reflector, probably much like a xenon reflector, and with some right. baffles uh, in front of the bulb to kind of help channel the light. But the point is, I think it has a two-degree spread or something, so it's a very, very narrow collimated beam, like a almost like right. a xenon, but without the, without the dead spot in the middle of the xenon beam. It, I mean, it's really fundamental the way the system works is that, that, that the light, the further away it travels from the source, it doesn't really spread all that much. So if you take right. a two-foot-by-two two mirror and collect part of that beam and send it off down a hallway, by the time it gets to the end of that hallway, it's still really only two feet wide, the patch of light that it, that, that mirror projects, you know, a little bit wider. So then you could take another two-foot mirror, collect most of that light, and send it down another, you know, on another angle, and when it gets across the room, it's still only going to be two feet some wide. So you don't right. have light spilling all over. If you tried that same effect with just a really bright, non-collimated light source, like a 4K PAR, mm-hmm. you took your two-foot mirror and reflected the light 20 feet across the room. By the time it gets to the 20 feet across the room, it's going to be a four-foot square or a three-and-a-half-foot square, and it's going to be much less intense. So the collimation of the light beam is really important. So Right. Um, and what what this technique has done for him most practically, I think, is he's using less wattage, but he also doesn't have any light stands on the floor. So the actors, again, are moving all around the room, right. and the camera's looking all around the room, and that just gives it a kind of natural, genuine quality that just seems like the filmmakers aren't there. We're just watching fly-on-the-wall style, you know, looking into the lives of these people without really seeming like a film audience but rather an observer in the room right because right off the bat from a physics standpoint the light has a lot of the same qualities as natural light because our natural light being the sun it's highly it 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 has a very similar fall off to that so he can put a a reflector in a room and and enjoy a lot of the same qualities of, of a real diffused light from the sun but you're right it's it's a great way of freeing up the space in a room which um i think you can see very clearly in the movie is taken advantage of all the time these long moving tracking shots and like the scene you're talking about in the office you know the camera comes in one way and we see one wall they sit down they have their conversation and then when they get up to leave they walk out the they walk out across the other side of the room you see yes. both sides that's mm-hmm. something that you never would be able to get away with on a schedule if you had a forest of lights for the one angle right led them in set them down and then to take them out you'd be turning around revealing your whole setup, you'd say, well, let's just have them walk out the same way they came in. Of course, yes. So that was a little bit of uh, cinematography bravura uh, that uh, is really very subtle, I think. You know? Very subtle. I don't think, I don't know who notices that, but I think that one set of people that do notice it and that really matter are the actors. I would imagine that the actors on set feeling like they could walk yes. out any way they want uh, or end up, or they could, you know, they could stand on the chair, lean against it, or sit in it however they wanted to. I think that's going to lead to a lot more uh, realism in the performance. It's much more typical for actors to be 
exploring their blocking or exploring how they want to handle a scene and having to turn to the to the uh, DP and say, oh, can I go over here? You know, and you start to, you know, the, the idea that lighting is always limiting performance is a, is a very real concept and taken for granted for any professional actor. Right. You know, typically you have to check with the cameraman bef before you can, you know, decide how to work a room. Right. And, and as cameramen, we have all sorts of tricks to help them think that they're allowed to go wherever they want, but when they're in reality, they're really not. <laughs> the trick I remember learning is if there's, a, if there's a corner of the set that you really don't want to light, just put like a bunch of C-stands and stuff in that corner during the rehearsal and just block it <laughs> or sit down on an Apple box in that corner. Then the actors won't walk over there. <laughs> so you can pen them in before they even start thinking about if they're allowed or not. Yes. So, yes. So it, I guess it would be pretty amazing for an actor to walk into a room and say, where's the lighting? There's no lighting. I can just go wherever I want. So. Right. Right. Would this kind of look that was used in cachet bother a American cinematographer who on some level knows that he or she must make a flashy movie to get noticed at Sundance? Or wherever. I mean, isn't that kind of a problem for the uh, young cinematographer trying to build a career and trying to adopt these very natural techniques of a sincere cinematography? I mean, this is nobody. No, nobody notices this yeah, cinematography. How am I going to get my next job? You know. It's, I think it's a real hollow compliment when someone, a layman, comes out of your movie and says, "Wow, the photography was really awesome. It really was really. I really noticed it." Because um, if you're a naturalist, it's, um, it's, that's not really a compliment at all. And I think that some of the most brilliant cinematographers have always have been able to get away with just amazing, very subtle work that in a lot of ways takes a lot more, a lot more care than, uh, than uh, just kind of like the flashy stuff. But you're right. It's, gonna, it's really hard to get noticed if the work is, uh, is very subtle. Absolutely. It's, it's easier to be flashy. And it's mm -hmm. probably rewarded more, at least in America. And I think that when uh, when the schedule, when the pressure of the schedule is burning, and uh, and you're and you're in a location that probably hasn't been scouted as well, and you don't really have an idea, and there's some other logistical challenge, it's very comforting to kind of just fall into this thing of like, well, three quarter front light and nice soft backlight, and right. go on a longer lens and and fuzz out the background a little bit, and and we'll just rely on the coverage to get through this. Right. Long lens saves all imagery. You know? <laughs> right. Because it just abstracts the background. It helps continuity. It helps, uh, you know, the wall's not as dark as it should be. It helps you keep the light off the walls. It's just, that's why you see it in TV so often. Sure. It's, it's quick and it's easy and it, and it, you know, and it looks good, I think, to American audiences. Um, sure. I mean, I'll, who doesn't like that look? It's a very seductive look. Well, Al, um, when we continue this conversation in part two of the sincere cinematography discussion. Uh, we're going to go on to discuss the films by a cinematographer I admire very much, Rodrigo Prieto, uh, who shot Amoros Peros and Babel. So in part two of this discussion, I look forward to uh, digging into those films a little bit and comparing them to the French film cachet and you know other versions of this kind of genuineness in uh, image making. So I want to thank you, uh, Al, for uh, talking with me today, and I uh, look forward to continuing this conversation in part two. Thanks, T.W. Always a pleasure. Alan Jacobson is a DP in New York, and we'll have links to more information about Alan, as well as other things discussed in the show at the Image Method blog, imagemethod.blogspot.com. 
If you have any comments or suggestions, please email us at imagemethod at gmail.com. That's imagemethod at gmail. If you like the show, I encourage you to spread the word. We appreciate it. Recommend it to your friends and send us to Delicious or Dig if you participate in that Web 2.0 type of thing. I'm T.W. Lee. Thanks a lot for listening to Image Method.